Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Before we jump in here, let's pause for another word of prayer. Father, we thank you for, Lord, this opportunity that we have now, Lord, to sit underneath your word. Lord, we long so much, Lord, to hear from you. And Lord, there are so many voices, Lord, that we hear each and every day, each and every week, Lord, on the television, uh, Lord, in in the workplace, um, friends, family, counselors, advisors of all sorts, Lord, but Lord, what we long this morning is to hear from you. And Father, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, Lord, that you would use it in our lives for good and for your glory, and Lord, we trust you to that end, Lord, and we will give you all the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Comedian Bob Newhart did a a comedy sketch a number of years ago where he was playing the role of a professional counselor. A lady comes into his office, maybe you've seen this, a lady comes into his office for counseling and sits down across from him at his desk and Bob begins to explain his, his billing structure to her. He explains that he, he, all he does is he charges for the first five minutes, a dollar per minute, and then absolutely nothing after that. He asks her how that sounds. She says, well, that sounds wonderful, but it sounds too good to be true. And he says, well, I can, I can almost guarantee that our session won't last more than the first five minutes. So he looks at his watch and he tells her to start describing her issue that brought her in for counseling that day. And so the woman reluctantly confesses to her that she's claustrophobic. She's afraid of, of being buried alive in a box. Remember, this is a comedy sketch. And uh, she, she says it's terrible. She says, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house. Anything boxy, she says. Well, having heard the woman's problem, Bob quickly transitions into his counsel mode. And he says, all right, let's go. I'm going to say two words right now. And I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and apply them to your life. Shall I write them down, the woman says? Well, if it makes you comfortable, but it's just two words. Most people can remember them. Okay, here they are. Stop it! (laughs) The woman is taken aback by this and stammers, I'm sorry. Stop it, he shouts again. S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. So what are you saying? You know, it's funny, Bob says. I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say the exact same thing you're saying. Stop it! So I should just stop it. There you go. I mean, you don't want to go through life being claustrophobic, do you? I mean, that sounds frightening. 
It is, says the woman. Then stop it. But I can't. I mean, it's been with me since childhood. No, no, no. We, we don't go there. Just stop it. So I should just stop being afraid? You've got it, he says. And he, he stands up and he tries to bring the counseling session to a close after th only three minutes. As promised, the session was less than five minutes. But somehow the woman didn't find his simple but blunt advice very helpful. Have you ever had someone tell you to just stop it? You know, in today's passage from Romans chapter 6, Paul's going to begin for the first time in Romans to give us a stop it command, to, to stop sinning. He's going to shift from the indicative, what we were talking about last week, just a plain statement of fact, to more of an imperative, appealing to us to stop sinning. But the thing I want you to keep in mind as we dive into this is that we must not de detach these commands here in, in Romans chapter 6 to, to cease sinning, to stop sinning, to, to let not sin reign in our mortal bodies. We, we cannot detach that from everything we've been studying up to this point in, in Romans 5 and 6 in particular, but really the whole letter. Right? We can't forget what Paul has been saying. Paul teaches us, especially in, in Romans chapter 5 and 6, that by faith, we go from being united to Adam, the first man, who rebelled against God and fell into sin, and, and through that, sin and death came to all of us. We were united to him as his offspring, and we were united to him in such a way that his sin is my sin and his death is my death. He represented us in that way. But the good news is, Paul says, that because we fell through a representative, we can also be saved through a representative. And so in the, the end of Romans chapter 5 and on into Romans chapter 6 here, we learn that by faith we are united to Christ in such a way that Christ's death on the cross is my death to sin and his resurrection from the grave is my new life, my resurrection life. And this unity with Christ, we learned last week, is so visibly and tangibly portrayed in our baptism, in our water baptism at, at conversion. As we're immersed beneath the waters, we are portraying our unity with Christ and his death. As we are further submerged underneath the waters, we are picturing our unity with him in his burial. And then as we emerge out of the waters, we are picturing our union with him as he walked out of the grave. His new life to God is our new life to God. His resurrection is our resurrection by faith in him. That's what Romans chapter 5 and 6 teaches. And so as we begin to look at, at these commands here, near the end, in the, right here in the middle of Romans chapter 6, where Paul begins to tell us to stop it, we we find that as we focus first upon who we are in Christ, that Christ has already won the victory for us, that we are already united to him, and that sin has, we have already died to sin, we have already become alive to God, 
that when Paul then comes to us and tells us to stop it, it's not like Bob Newhart in that counseling office just yelling at us in a frustrated sort of way, telling us, you better stop it. No, this is like one freed slave coming to other freed slaves and saying, look, we're free, right? Now, let's act like it. Let's act like we're free from sin. Let's behave in this way. Last week, I I closed my sermon with this quote from John Murray. He said, to say to the slave who has not been emancipated, do not behave as a slave, is to mock his enslavement. But to say the same to the slave who has been set free is the necessary appeal to put into effect the privileges and rights of his liberation. Now, that's some old talk here, so let me unpack that a little bit. He's basically saying to walk up to someone who is in slavery and to say in his slavery, hey, stop acting like a slave, right? That's insensitive at, at best, and it's, it's pointless at worst, and it's like mocking someone in their slavery. However, to walk up to someone who has been set free and, and to say to them, hey, stop acting like a slave now that you're free, that, that's right, that's good, or as John Murray puts it, it's necessary. Right? After someone's been set free, if they go on acting as if they are in bondage, it, it is a good thing to go up to them and to, to tell them, hey, act like a free man, act like a free woman. And so, even when Paul is pressed by, by this hypothetical question here in chapter 6, verse 1, look down your Bibles here, let's review this a little bit. Well, actually, back up just a moment to chapter 5, verse 20. Paul made this statement here in 520. He says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And you'll remember we, we talked about how that brings up a fear in people. Paul's announcing that, that uh, all that the law does is increase our sinfulness. It increases our trespass. But yet... In Christ, we know that, that even as the law came in and increased our sinfulness, increased our trespass before God, God sent Christ into the world and God's grace abounded all the more, even over and above our increased trespasses. Now, the fear that that raises in people is that, you know, if you remove the penalty of, if you're announcing here that, hey, the law just, just increases sin, but yet there's grace to cover all that sin, you're just announcing the removal of a penalty. And if you announce the removal of a penalty, what power is there that remains to, to, uh, to, to exist in your life that you w- won't continue in sin, that sin won't just increase and increase and increase in your life? And so that's behind this question here in verse 1 of chapter 6. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? So, are you saying, Paul, that it's a good thing that we sin because no matter how much we sin, there's, there's just going to be more grace, more grace, more grace? Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Right? He takes them back to their position in Christ. He says, you have already died to this. How can you continue to live in it? For someone who truly believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been united with Christ in his, in his death in such a way that you have already died to sin. Paul doesn't immediately go to the, to the command to say, you better die to sin. He doesn't do that. 
No, he takes us back to what is already true about us in Christ. And he says, you have died to sin in Christ. And he reviews that fact for us. He reviews the doctrine of our unity with Christ. And this is what we went over last week, verses 1 through 10. It is important that we first understand the doctrine of our, of our unity with Christ before we ever hear one single command to stop sinning, to stop it. <laughs> you must understand the indicative, the doctrine, and you must understand that Christ's death not only covered the penalty for our sins, but also has broken the power of it in your life. You must understand that before we move on to the imperative. You know, I was listening to uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones preach on this, this passage this week, so he kind of influenced some of what I'm saying here this morning. But he, um, he really emphasized this fact that, you know, these days many people sort of put down the teaching of and the understanding of doctrine. And, you know, they do that sort of in favor of of a more practical theology to say, well, pastor, we don't really want to get into doctrine. It's divisive. It's hard to understand. All these sorts of things. Just tell me what to do. <laughs> Give me 10 points, you know, to how to better my life or how to stop sinning or how to do whatever. But what you don't understand is that it's the doctrine that provides you the, the, the proper understanding. It provides you the, the, the power to be able to do the practical stuff. So we can't just skip over the doctrine. Don't minimize the doctrine. Don't ever say, oh, well, I don't really need to understand these things, even though they're hard to understand. Apply yourself to understanding them. Really dig into it, because it's in the understanding of it that you find the power that you need to fight sin in your life. Right? How, if, if all you do is rush to the how-to, like here's 10 quick, quick tips to uh, grow in holiness this week, if you just rush right to that without understanding the doctrine, how do you know that you're going about it the right way? How do you know that you even understand God? How do you know that you're not going about it in a man-centered way instead of a God-centered way? How do you know you're not following just the teachings and philosophies of men? No, we need to understand the doctrine. We need to understand what does the scriptures say? Not what, not what do I feel or not what impression do I get, or how do I take it, or what's my quick take on it. No, what does the scripture say? What does the doctrine of the word of God teach? Right, dig into that. And then move on to the practice. Now, it, it's just as wrong to only focus on the theoretical, the doctrine, right? We, even though I'm touting this morning that we, we need to dig into the doctrine, at some point we need to move from the theoretical, from the doctrine, into the practical. We need to move from, hey, you are, you are alive in Christ, you've died to sin, all that great doctrine, you've been united with Christ, but some, at some point we need to transition from that wonderful doctrine and we need to put it into practice. Right? It's just as wrong to only focus on the doctrine, but never actually exercise your understanding of that in your day-to-day -day life. Or Jesus, when he was washing the feet of his disciples, he first taught them about it. And, and, and then he did it. Or actually, first he did it, but then he taught them about it. He did both teaching and he practiced it. And when he got to the end of that, in, in John chapter 13, verse 17, he said, Now that you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. 
Right? Jesus never taught doctrine just so, for the sake of knowing. Right? He taught doctrine so that we would then, in knowing that, then we would do it. And so this is that moment here in the book of Romans where we move from learning the doctrine to moving into the practical, the how-to, the, the hey, do this, the imperative command. And, and so first, we need to understand the, the indicative, understand the, the, um, the doctrine, verses 1 through 10. And then we need to obey the imperatives, verses 11 through 14. Paul gives, he gives four quick imperative commands here in these, these verses, verses 11 through 14. And the first one we see, we actually talked about this last week. Verse 11, Paul says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And I hammered this last week, but I just can't help hammering it again. That the very first command that Paul gives is not actually a command to do something. It's a, it's a command to believe something, to consider something, to reckon something. He says, he says um, you must consider, you must reckon or, or judge yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Christian, do you know the doctrine? Do you understand it? But even more importantly, do you believe it? Do you believe that the power of sin has been broken in your life? When you stand before temptation, do you believe that its power is broken or do you feel that that sin is inevitable? Do you do you know and believe and understand that you have been crucified with Christ? That's the first command here, is to reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. Tom Schreiner said this, he said, To judge that one is dead to sin and alive to God is not an example of mind over matter. Instead, the judgment is based on what is true, by virtue of being incorporated into Christ. And uh, let me explain that for just a moment. The reason I bring that up is because this idea of considering ourselves dead to Christ, I'm sorry, dead to sin, but alive to Christ, is not just mind over matter. This isn't some mental trick that I'm teaching you this morning. This, in fact, the, the doctrine of who we are in Christ is more real than the, lives, the, the lies that we believe to the contrary, right? We're, we're training our minds to believe something that is true about us in Christ, whether we, you know, we can't see it right now. Christ is hid on high at the right hand of God, but we are, the scriptures tell us that we are united with him. And so we must continually preach this to ourselves, we must continually remind ourselves and reckon ourselves dead to sin but alive to him. And it's not some mental trick that we play. It is an actual uh, it is believing the truth. It is believing the truth. You know, in the armor of God you know what the belt is in the armor of God? It's the, it's the truth. Right? We, we have the truth and the truth sets us free. But there's so much in this world. We exist in a, a world that is, is engaged in spir a spiritual warfare. And there, there are lies everywhere. Who do you believe? You can believe the word of God more than you can believe the lies of this world. Do you believe what the scriptures say are true about you in, in Christ? It must begin with that, right? That's the very first commandment. Reckon yourselves, consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
I, I loved the way Martin Lloyd-Jones put it. He said that we are to reckon and then go on reckoning and keep on reckoning ourselves dead to sin every day, right? And I think what this practically looks like in my life is when, when you know, an old besetting sin comes up in my life and I feel tempted about it, I literally remind myself of this truth found in Romans chapter 6, and I say to myself, Stan, you're dead to that. You are dead to that, right? And I remind myself that giving in to that sin is not inevitable, right? It no longer has dominion over me. The power of that has been broken. And that is something we continually must do. We must continually reckon ourselves dead to that sin. Now, the second commandment here found in verse 12. Paul says this. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. First, notice the therefore. You know, it's just a good principle in biblical interpretation. Whenever you see a therefore, you, you realize that what you're about to read is a logical conclusion of what came before. Right? And that's the exact same thing that's happening here. Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. This practical command is the natural outworking of the doctrine of verses 1 through 11 and really the doctrine of the, the very first five and a half chapters of the book. And Paul is, is drawing a conclusion here in this. He says basically that if you are united to Christ and if in unity with him you have died to sin and death and its reign over you, and if you have been made alive to God in his benevolent reign, therefore let not sin reign in your mortal bodies to obey its passions. Right? It, it just naturally flows. What is the conclusion that you should draw from this? Do you really need the Apostle Paul to draw this conclusion for you? Or if you've been following along with us and soaking in this doctrine, don't you understand that it is, it, it's not only inappropriate for us to continue in sin, but it, it should be impossible because we have died to sin. This is the natural outworking of the doctrine. Can, continuing to allow sin to reign in your mortal body after you've been united to Christ is crazier than continuing to allow your former tyrant of a boss to push you around even after you've moved on to another company. Right? Maybe you had a, a tyrannical boss at some point. You said, man, I quit this job, got a new job. But then you continue to receive emails from him and he's being a tyrant in your life and you continue to submit to him. That's crazy. That's, that's the situation we're in as Christians. Sin is no longer our boss. It's crazier uh, than continuing to allow a professor or teacher to give you assignments after you've already graduated, right? It's summertime. You don't have to listen to the teachers anymore, right? Well, these days, kids have summer assignments, I guess. We didn't have those when I was in school. It's crazier than continuing to behave as a citizen of a despotic regime after you've already been granted asylum and new citizenship in a free land. And as I said at the beginning, this is not like a frustrated and burnt out counselor just yelling at people with problems to stop it. This is one freed slave telling other freed slaves, remember you are free. 
So notice the therefore. Secondly, notice that the very fact that Paul makes this command admits to the reality of the ongoing presence of sin in the life of a Christian. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying here this morning. I'm not saying that that sin just goes away, that the presence of sin just goes away. What I'm saying is that its penalty and its power have been broken, but its presence will always be here as long as we are in these mortal bodies. We call this indwelling sin. Sin has taken up residence in these mortal bodies. And as long as you are in this mortal body, the presence of sin will never be less or more, right? It's always going to be there. I'm not saying the, the, the presence of sin as in you should be sinning just as much as you always have. Hopefully that will diminish as you, you grow in Christ and are progressively sanctified in him. But what I'm saying is the presence of sin as a power does not go away, right? It does not go away. The, the, the presence of sin exists in this mortal flesh, and it will never be less or more present while we are in the flesh. It's here. It's here to stay. It's, it, it is with us until we finally lay this Adam-like flesh in the, in the grave and are raised again immortal. Right? We must put off the, the mortal bodies and, so that we can be clothed with the immortal body. And so, I, like I said, I, I don't want you to get the impression that, that um, somehow I'm preaching some sort of sinless perfection. No, as Christians, we do continue to struggle with the presence of sin in our lives. Some Christians think that progressive sanctification means the progressive eradic- eradication of sin's presence in your life. But as I said uh, the scriptures do not teach that. They teach that, that sin's presence is here through what we call indwelling sin, and it will be with us until we lay these bodies aside someday. Uh, I, thirdly here, notice that Paul makes a point of saying not to let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Notice that word mortal why does he emphasize not just your body, but your mortal body? Well, I like the way uh, one commentator by the name of Douglas Moo explained it. He said this. He said, in characterizing the body as mortal, Paul is reminding us that the same body that has been severed from its servitude to sin is nevertheless a body that still participates in the weakness, suffering, and dissolution of this age. Until we are fully redeemed and put on immortality, we will continue to be subject to the influences of this age, and the believer must not let these influences hold sway. So spiritually, we have been born again, right? There's a part of us that has already put on immortality. It's within us. But our continued existence in this world is connected to this mortal body in this mortal body is how we interact with this world. Now, we have to always be careful here as we emphasize this. We need to always be careful not to throw the, the baby out with the bathwater. I'm not, I'm not saying here that everything that's physical is bad and everything that's spiritual is good. 
I'm not saying that. That's a, that's a bad conclusion to come. If, if you hear me saying that, you might come to the conclusion, well, if sin is in the mortal body and this physical body is, is all bad, then I probably ought to become a monk somewhere and just completely leave the physical world and just sit around cross-legged and praying continually, right? Just completely pull out of the world. That, some people come to that conclusion with this kind of teaching. But that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that, that the body is, is all bad. No, our, our bodies are a gift from God. And our hope as Christians is not that someday we will be free from this physical body and then become some disembodied spirits floating around in the, in the nether somewhere. Right? Our hope as, a, as Christians is a bodily hope. Our hope is that we will put off this mortal flesh and be clothed with immortal flesh. Right? Our hope is a resurrection hope. Our bodies will, will change, they will be transformed, but they are, we will still be embodied for all eternity in Christ. And that is our hope. I think 1 Corinthians 15 is, is really instructive in this. I just wanted to read for you a, a little passage of that. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 50 here. Paul says this, I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But behold, I, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality, and when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That is our hope. It is a bodily hope that we have as Christians. And so, in the meantime, though, Paul emphasizes that sin dwells in our mortal bodies and that the, the passions of that mortal body, if, if we submit to sin and we allow sin to reign in our mortal bodies, then the, the passions of our mortal bodies will drive us to sin. Paul says here in verse, verse 12, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Right? Don't be confused by that word passions. You know, sometimes we speak about being passionate and we speak about that in a positive way, right? It's good to be passionate. I'm passionate. Hopefully people will describe me as passionate about the word of God. That's a good thing to be passionate in that way. But that's not what Paul means here when he talks about the passions of the body. He means something more like the lusts of the body, right? It's a negative connotation. In fact, I think the King James actually does translate it lusts. I want you to clearly understand that, that the God-given desires of the body are not sinful inherently, right? God, it, God is the one who gave us the desire for tasty food, right? But sin steps in and it, it uh, makes us want more tasty food than we ought to eat, right? And we call that what? Gluttony, right? Or God gave us uh, the gift of sex as a good desire, a good bodily desire, but sin steps in and it twists that and it perverts that and it causes us to want it in a way that we shouldn't have it. Right? These are, are the sorts of things we're talking about. The natural God-given good desires that we have are not evil. 
But when we let sin reign, sin takes those desires and it perverts it for evil. And so the call to being a Christian is not a call to some joylessness where we never enjoy the good gifts that God's given. No, the call to be in Christ is a call to let Christ reign in you instead of sin and not to obey the lusts of the flesh. Now, the third and fourth imperatives that Paul gives us here in verses 13 and 14 closely correspond to one another and are going to be expounded on in the, in the rest of the, the passage. And we're going to actually unfold these things a little bit more deeply here in a couple weeks when we uh, come back again in two weeks from now and complete Romans chapter 6. But we're just going to introduce these concepts to you this morning. So the third commandment here is in verse 13. Paul says this. He says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. I'll just finish the verse. But present yourselves to God, that's the second command, as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So the first half of that verse here, do not present your bodies, the members of your sin, I'm sorry, the members, your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. I have these, these natural bells out here when I'm preaching to remind me I'm getting long-winded. So it's getting close to 11 here and the, the church is reminding us across the street. Do not present the members of your body to sin, right? What, what does Paul mean here when he says, do not present your members to sin? He's talking about the members of your body. That obviously includes things like your hands, your feet, your tongue, your ears, your eyes, the, the, the literal members of your body, but it also certainly includes things like your mind and your heart, your thoughts and, and the feelings and intents of your heart. It's the capacity, natural capacities of your body, even beyond your hands and your feet, but your mind and your heart and your will as well. Do not present the members or capacities of your body to sin. He says that um, do not present your members or natural capacities to sin as instruments or literally weapons of unrighteousness. The terminology here is kind of has this military flavor to it, right? When we present ourselves to a commanding officer and, and the word um, here instruments is, could be translated literally as weapons, and just as, as someone might present arms to a commanding officer and instrument, as instruments of war, so we are not to go on presenting the members or capacities of our body to the tyrant of sin to do its bidding. Now, we usually understand this first half of this verse. When, when people think of Christianity, they think of this kind of command. You know, stop it. <laughs> Don't, stop sinning. Stop presenting your body to sin, the members of your body to sin. But what we often forget is the second half of this, this verse, which is the positive command. Do present yourselves to God. The instruments of your, of your body, the members of your body as instruments to God for righteousness. Right? It's the exact opposite. So we're, we're not only to put off the old man, but we must also put on the new man. We're not only to stop presenting ourselves to our old master of sin for unrighteousness, but we must also present ourselves positively to God for the sake of righteousness. This is such an important thing, but so often practic practically neglected in the daily Christian life. 
Paul himself, I think, offers the best commentary on this in the book of Ephesians. And I don't think I have time to take you there this morning, but hopefully you're familiar with these passages. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about putting off the old man and putting on the new man. So, for example, we don't just stop presenting our tongues to sin for the purpose of falsehood. No, we present our tongues to God for the purpose of speaking the truth and for praising him with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, right? So you put off the old man, the, the telling of lies, and the using our tongues for slander and gossip and all sorts of things, and we present our tongue to God for the, the, the use of the truth and the use of praising him with all that we have. Ephesians 4.28, we don't just stop presenting our hands to sin for the purpose of stealing or theft or, or you could list other things you might do with your hands, but we present our hands to God for the purpose of honest work and generosity. Or you add back in the positive thing that God commands you to do. We are free now in Christ to do the good thing, to do the thing that glorifies God, to do the thing that God wants us to do. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, we don't just stop presenting our bodies to sin for the purpose of drunkenness. No, we now present our bodies to God and he fills us with his Holy Spirit. And I could go on and on with this kind of, kind of thing. Don't just stop sin, but turn to God. You are now alive to God and present the members of your body to him for righteousness. And he gives you the power through his Holy Spirit to actually do it. Notice there's no middle ground here. No, you're either submitting yourself to sin or you're submitting yourself to God. There's no middle ground. And, and notice how Paul wraps things up here in verse 14. He says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. He returns us to the promise. So after giving these commands, he returns us to the hopeful promise that, that sin will not have dominion over you because you are not under the law anymore. You are under grace. He always returns us back to the indicative, back to the promises of God. And so the cycle repeats in our lives as we understand the doctrine, we believe it, we reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And then from that position of unity with Christ, we obey the commands to stop it. And so my application flows out of everything we've just been saying here this morning. You need to understand, reckon, and obey, and then obey. Christian, allow me to, to pepper you with a couple questions here, some application questions. I encourage you, if you're a note taker, to write some of these down. Uh, if you miss them, go back on Facebook this week and write them down and think about them in your, in your quiet time this week. First, do you understand the doctrine we've been talking about in Romans 1 through 5 and a half? Do you understand it or are you lost? Because I don't want you to just say, hey, that, was that, that stuff we've been talking about the past few months, that's too hard to understand, but now we're finally getting to the practical stuff, right? I want to ask you, do you understand? If you don't understand it, then let's get some coffee. Let's talk about it one-on-one. -on -one. Let's hash it out. Right? You need to understand that. It doesn't have to be me. Find a, a mature believer here in Christ and make sure you understand and love the doctrine that we've been talking about. But you say, Pastor, I, I understand that, all right. I've been understanding that. Well, okay then. Let's take it to the next step. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? When you consider the ongoing presence of indwelling sin in your life, do you believe that its power is broken in your life? 
Do you believe verses like 1 Corinthians 10.13 that says this? No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Do you believe that? But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. This, this flows right out of the doctrine that, we, that the power of sin has been broken. God's not going to allow you to be tempted in some way that's beyond his power in your life. And he will always, he is faithful to always provide a way of escape. You must believe that. You must understand it, then you must believe it. And you say, yes, yes, I understand and I believe these things. Well, okay then, then, then persevere in reckoning yourself dead to sin and alive to, to Christ. As Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, reckon, go on reckoning, keep on reckoning. Don't lose heart in that. Does your understanding and reckoning compel you to obey the command that we find in verse 12, let not, your, let, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies? Christian, are you living in unrepentant sin? You should know that it is God's will for your life. 1 Thessalonians 4. It is God's will for your life that you be sanctified. Right? I believe that's 1 Thessalonians 4.3. It's an important verse to know. Yeah, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So many times people, we, we long to know should I make this decision or that decision? Should I marry this person or that person? Should I take this job or that job? But Christian, let me tell you this. More important than all those sorts of guidance questions that we, we want to ask the Lord all the time, know that you know the will of God for your life. The will of God for your life is that you would be holy, that you would be sanctified. And God is sovereign, and he will accomplish that work in your life. If you are a true believer in Christ, he will accomplish sanctification in your life. He will do it. And you have to believe that. You have to know that. And it, I think that's, one, it's an encouragement for those of us in the trenches, day in and day out, resisting sin, but it's also a warning to us when we live in unrepentant sin because God disciplines his children. He disciplines those he loves. And so you know, know this, that when you are, as a Christian, not living in holiness, not living in a sanctified life, that you are putting yourself at odds with God's will in your life, and he will step into that situation. He will punish, and it, as a father punishes his children, he will step into your life for your good and for his glory to bring about holiness, to conform you into the image of Christ. That's a wonderful promise. But it's also a, a, a warning to us. Christian, are you merely trying to stop it in your own strength? without presenting your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Perhaps you need to carefully consider what it looks like, not just to stop sinning, but to also present your members to God, to positively do acts of righteousness by the power of the Holy Spirit to replace those former patterns of sin in your life. 
Now secondly, and finally, I want to ask, are you weary of your sin and of trying to stop it in your own strength? Could it be that what you really need is to be set free from the power of sin? Have you ever been set free from that power by faith in Jesus Christ? Christ died on the cross. He shed his blood on the cross to wipe away our guilty consciences. To wipe them clean. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's nothing but the blood of Jesus that can cleanse your guilty conscience. Christ died for your sins on the cross. He died to the power of sin. He not only took the penalty for it, but he, he, he defeated the power of it. He then entered the grave and then he rose from the dead on the third day in utter defeat of our enemies, sin and death. And then what did Christ do once he rose from the grave? He did a victory lap, right? He didn't just immediately go up to heaven. No, he did a victory lap. He went around and he, he was seen by all of his closest followers. Many of them were ready, were dejected and were ready to quit, go back to their former lives. Peter was about to become a fisherman again. Thomas was completely dejected. I mean, these men were crushed. They were cowering in a back room somewhere. And then Christ rose from the grave and Christ did a victory lap and he showed the whole world that he was alive. And so our hope, like I said earlier, is not just this vain hope. But we have a, a hope that's grounded in the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And after Jesus rose from the dead and did his victory lap, he ascended back up into heaven where the scriptures teach us that he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father as King of kings and Lord of lords. What's the last thing Jesus said before he went back up into heaven? He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If you are still lost in your sins, you say that sin is just, it's just crushing me right now. And... I have no power to overcome it, then hear from God's word that there is one who has overcome sin. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He has authority over sin even in your life, and he can rescue you from it. Repent of your sins, place your faith in him, and be saved. It is only through this process, through the process of recognizing your sinfulness, repenting of it, placing your faith in Jesus, that you can be united to Christ. And in unity with him, you can have victory over sin and death. Not only its penalty, not only its power, but also one day its very presence. We sang last week in the hymn, Come Thou Fount, fourth verse that's not as well known. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. I don't know about you, but I long for that day. As much as I, I love my life, I love so many things about, I thank God for my body. But man, on that day when I lay this mortal body aside and am and, and clothed in immortality, and when I am able to stand before God, sinless, no, lo no longer struggling with my sin, no longer struggling with the presence of my sin. What a glorious day that will be. And my friend, I hope you will be there with me. 
through faith in Jesus Christ. If you've never trusted in Christ, never repented of your sins, I would be honored to show you how you can do that today. In closing, I want you to hear the call of Jesus himself to you. Matthew chapter 11. Jesus said this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That's Jesus' equivalent of stop it. He says, leave your old taskmaster of sin. Take off that old yoke and come. Let me be your Lord. Let me be your master. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Hear the call of Jesus to you today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for this glorious gospel for this wonderful good news, Lord, that has changed us, has set us free, and Lord, that has put us on a new trajectory, full of hope and life. Father, I pray that you would accompany the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of your word with power that can only be explained by your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you would use this word for good in my church's life. And Lord, may we take this gospel with us, Lord, away from this place this morning, and may we shine it into the world. Lord, give us open doors this week to shine this good news. And Father, encourage us in our, in our private struggle with sin, Lord, with indwelling sin. Lord, give us faith to believe these things, to give us knowledge to understand them. And Lord, give us strength to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to you. Lord, we ask you for this strength now. And we praise you for what you have done in our lives and what you are doing and what we believe you are going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.